Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Marjorie Cohn, past president of the National Lawyers Guild, who examines the consequences of the Supreme Court's recent ruling, which upheld a pair of voter suppression laws in Arizona, further eroding the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Matthew Ho, senior fellow with the Center for International Policy, who warns that after American troops are withdrawn from Afghanistan, the U.S. is planning to continue the war through drone airstrikes. And Natalie Meebane, 350.org's policy director, who discusses a recently released video recording revealing a senior ExxonMobil lobbyist describing how the oil giant blocks climate action in Congress. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Marie Le Pen, leader of France's far-right party, the National Rally, failed to secure a single region in the decisive second round of voting in France's off-year election. Le Pen and French President Emmanuel Macron hoped to use the election to boost their prospects before next year's presidential election, but the outcome revived hopes for traditional conservative and socialist parties which had been displaced by the rise of centrist Macron. National Rally had hoped to win a regional government in southern France, recruiting former transportation minister Thierry Mariani as their candidate, who had earlier defected from the center-right Republicans. In the second-round election, he lost to a traditional conservative candidate by a significant margin. The Green Party candidate had dropped out of the second round in the region in order to prevent Mariani from winning. In the first round of the off-year election, Macron's party, La République en Marche, fared poorly and did not actively compete in the second round. The party is seen as a singular vehicle for Macron with little local support. Turnout for the election was at a record low, with under 35% of eligible voters casting ballots. Billionaire Peter Thiel, a founder of PayPal, has publicly condemned confiscatory taxes. He's been a major funder of Republican politicians and one of the most prominent anti-tax political action committees in the country. But Thiel has done very well at avoiding paying his own taxes. Over the last 20 years, he's quietly turned his Roth IRA, a retirement investment account intended to spur Americans to save for their golden years, into a gargantuan tax-exempt piggy bank. According to ProPublica, Thiel used stock deals unavailable to most people to build a retirement account worth less than $2,000 in 1999 that today is now valued at over $5 billion. Other super-wealthy individuals have used loopholes in Roth IRAs to build huge investment vehicles. For example, Berkshire Hathaway executive Ted Weschler has over $246 million in a Roth IRA, while hedge fund manager Robert Mercer has $32 million in his. ProPublica's investigation reveals that the term individual retirement account has become a misnomer. Rather than a way to build a nest egg for old age, the accounts have morphed into supercharged investment vehicles for the super-rich, subsidized by American taxpayers. 
Leaders of the Minneapolis chapter of Black Lives Matter were only a few blocks away when George Floyd was murdered by police officer Derek Chauvin outside a convenience store. The incident, caught on cell phone video, spurred months of nationwide street protests against police violence and raised the consciousness of millions of Americans to fight systemic racism and white supremacy. In These Times magazine reports that within hours of George Floyd's murder, activists organized a petition to defund the Minneapolis Police Department. The city council's draft charter amendment last year called for replacing the city's police department with a Department of Community Safety and Violence Prevention. The language said that this department may include, but would not be required, to have a division of law enforcement services. The proposal was halted by the city's Charter Commission and did not go before voters last November. This November, Minneapolis voters will be asked if they want to change the charter to have a Department of Public Safety instead of a police department. The Yes for Minneapolis Coalition wants to make it clear that getting rid of cops is not their intent. Instead, they say handing off tasks such as mental health intervention and low-level traffic enforcement to other professionals would help police do their jobs and avoid unnecessary violent confrontations with the community they serve. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of two Arizona voter suppression laws in the Bronovich v. Democratic National Committee case on July 1st. The ruling comes as the nation has witnessed the passage of more than 22 Republican-sponsored voter suppression laws in over a dozen states. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, there are another 61 similar bills still pending in 18 other states. In a 6-3 decision along ideological lines, the majority conservative justices turned back a challenge to two Arizona laws that voting rights advocates assert disproportionately restrict the rights of voters in communities of color and among indigenous citizens. One of the laws prevents people from submitting a completed ballot from another voter, with certain exceptions, and the other stops voters from casting their ballot at a location other than their assigned polling place. The 1965 Voting Rights Act was gutted in a previous 2013 Supreme Court ruling that invalidated Section 5, that mandated pre-clearance of new voting laws for certain jurisdictions with a history of imposing voter suppression laws. Many legal observers say this latest ruling eviscerates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits voting practices that discriminate against minority voters. Your reporter spoke with Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, past president of the National Lawyers Guild and author. Here she examines the consequences of the Supreme Court's recent ruling, which further erodes the 1965 Voting Rights Act. What happened is that the six right-wingers ruled over the dissent of the three liberals that two of the laws in Arizona, the out-of-precinct policy 
and the ballot harvesting provision did not violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, Section 2 forbids any voting procedure that results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race. So um, Samuel Alito wrote the majority opinion, and um, Elena Kagan wrote the dissent. And Alito, in the majority opinion, on behalf of he and the other five right-wingers on the court, wrote that voting restrictions should only be struck down if they impose substantial burdens on voters of color that prevent them from voting. And he said that where a state provides many ways to vote, any burden on voters who choose one of the available options can't be evaluated without also taking into account the other available means. One of the most alarming things about this decision is that the majority said that the prevention of voter fraud is a legitimate state interest that can overcome proof of a burden on voters and uphold voting restriction. Now, voter fraud is a bogus mantra that the Republicans and Donald Trump um, parroted during the election. Voter fraud, voter fraud. There is virtually no evidence of voter fraud, and yet the Supreme Court said preventatively they can uh, put in place these voting restrictions to prevent this bogus voter fraud. In the dissent, Elena Kagan lambasted the majority for writing its own set of rules and limiting Section 2 from multiple directions. She said that the majority established a list of mostly made-up factors which were at odds with Section 2 itself, and uh, they all cut in one direction, and that is toward limiting liability for race-based voting inequities. Um, there are two laws pending in Congress, and unfortunately, um, because of the Senate being 50-50 and a couple of blue dog Democrats who vote with the Republicans, um, they're not likely to go very far at this point. But one of them is the For the People Act, which would uh, enhance voting rights and the administration of elections. It discusses money and politics, redistricting government, transparency and ethics. And then the other uh, bill that's pending is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to protect voters in states with a pattern of discrimination, with a history of, of a pattern of discrimination, and to ensure that last-minute changes in voting procedures don't endanger people's right to vote and protect voters from changes likely to disenfranchise people of color and language minorities. Um, there's also the Judiciary Act of 2021, which is pending, and that would increase the number of Supreme Court justices from 9 to 13. Um, that could dilute the right-wing agenda of the current six right-wing members of the court. I don't know that it's going to go anywhere either. Um, Biden has set up a commission of law professors to study the Supreme Court, and they really are not uh, talking too much about increasing the number of justices, um, although they are talking about term limits, but that would require a constitutional amendment, which is literally impossible. So this is really, really bad, Scott. It's, um, it does not portend well for voting rights of people of color and minorities. It's very, very distressing. And, you know, people were saying throughout the term, oh, you know, the, the court's not being ideological. You know, there's different combinations of justices and their politics, but they really showed their true colors in this case. It's a real blow dealt to the rights of voters.
In speaking about the future of the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, there's the obstacle of the filibuster in the Senate, unless the Democrats uh, rally to get rid of the filibuster. Uh, these two pieces of legislation may be dead. Do you believe the Democratic Party is fully committed to, uh, to passing this legislation? Or is there some ambivalence, do you think, there? No, I think that the Democrats would like to pass it, but I think they're, they've kind of resigned themselves to, you know, the uh, obstruction by um, Manchin to, uh, to keep the filibuster. And as long as the filibuster is there, um, they're, they're really kind of paralyzed. So I think that, uh, you know, they're probably discouraged. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the progressives in the Democratic Party are really pushing hard. The moderates are, you know, kind of throwing up their hands. I hope they don't give up. But at this point, it, it, it's not looking great. That was Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, past president of the National Lawyers Guild and author. Find a link to her recent article titled Supreme Court Drives a Stake Through the Heart of the Voting Rights Act and Related Analysis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. President Joe Biden set September 11, 2021 as the pullout date for U.S. troops in Afghanistan, which would mark the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks carried out by members of the Al-Qaeda terrorist group, which enjoyed safe haven in Afghanistan. When U.S. forces left the sprawling Bagram Air Base early on July 1st, President Biden promised that he wouldn't abandon the Afghan people by employing attack drones to defend the country. Meanwhile, peace activists and policy analysts have signed an online petition drafted by the group BanKillerDrones.org, calling on the president to pledge that there will be no further U.S. air attacks on the Afghan people and that the U.S. will discontinue drone surveillance there as well. The petition is being circulated in response to press reports and official statements that the U.S. is planning over-the-horizon air missions against al-Qaeda and ISIS in Afghanistan. The reports also maintain that the U.S. has not foreclosed the possibility of air attacks against the Taliban, should the rebel force be on the verge of taking over Afghanistan's central government. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Matthew Ho, a former Marine captain who resigned from the State Department because of his opposition to U.S. war policies in Afghanistan. He's now a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a member of the Eisenhower Media Group, which provides a platform to former military leaders who speak out against U.S. wars, interventionism, and excessive military spending. Here he explains why over-the-horizon drone attacks are both a human rights violation and counterproductive. A lot of what we're hearing now is, of course, like the, 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 those who want the war to continue, those who don't want the United States to lose its bases over there, who are going to be using whatever type of the sky is falling argument to keep the war going. Where this uh, starts to change, though, in the sense of how the evolution of warfare, but also to the, the, the impact it has on, on people on the ground is with the ability of the drones to stay in the air and basically orbit constantly, continuously without leaving. And one of the things that just occurred in the last uh, month was the Navy successfully uh, operated its uh, drone aerial refueling uh, tanker for the first time. 
what you, you need to imagine is the idea that there will be drones flying over Afghanistan that have no requirement for the pilot to uh, you know, go to sleep, uh, use the bathroom, eat food, whatever, right? As long as the airframe is able to operate continuously, um, it can stay up there and then it can be re resupplied by drones. Uh, you know, they can, the, the drone air tankers will resupply these drone bombers that are over the airspace. So you never have uh, airspace that is not covered by the drones. Um, and, you know, th this has an incredibly horrific effect on the people, on the population. We, we know there have been um, plenty of documentation uh, of the effect that the drones have because of uh, their constant presence, the way they sound, the way, at least if you're on the ground, they indiscriminately kill. Uh, we know from leaked documents uh, by Daniel Hale, who's now in prison for leaking these documents, but Daniel Hale, who was part of the drone program, uh, and because of a crisis of conscience, he leaked uh, a lot of information on the drone program. We know that 90% of the people that the drones kill are civilians. You know, so if you're if you're a young person growing up in Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Yemen, parts of Africa, uh, and you hear that every day, uh, you grow up uh, with a, a post-traumatic stress disorder that is baked in and you know what chance do you ever have of having a life without suffering um you know and then there's the practical aspects of this which i, I want to make sure people understand is that we've been using these drones for two decades now along with invading and occupying places and we've only seen the enemy if you will get stronger so in 2001 after the 9-11 attacks, uh, according to you know, the FBI, Al-Qaeda was about 400 members total worldwide, total. And we've seen the results of the last two decades. Al-Qaeda has grown to tens and tens of thousands of people. They have spun branches and affiliates and, and outfits like the Islamic State all across the world. They've taken over entire cities and regions. In 2001, the U.S. State Department would report that there are four terror groups in Afghanistan and Pakistan, four. And now if you look at the terror report from the uh, U.S. State Department, there are 20 terror groups in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And it's just not limited to Afghanistan. If you look at Africa, in the year that the United States Africa Command was stood up, so the U.S. Military Command for all of Africa, which was stood up in 2008, there were less than 300 terror attacks throughout all of Africa. 10 years after AFRICOM was stood up, there were 5,000 terror attacks in Africa. So it's not only the morality, it's not only the suffering that these things bring, but, but they are also incredibly counterproductive. And so that's a good part of the argument is, is look, you know, if, if you had evidence that this worked, okay. But there is no evidence that this works. And actually, the evidence shows that it makes the problem much worse. To do nothing would be much better than what we are doing now with the drones and the other type of, of counter-terror military missions uh, in the United States is running throughout the Muslim world. That was Matthew Ho, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and one of many signers of the BanKillerDrones.org petition. Find more analysis and commentary on America's planned future use of drones in Afghanistan by visiting our Between the Lines website.
at btlonline.org. Britain's Channel 4 News released a video recording on June 30th, which featured a senior ExxonMobil lobbyist revealing how the fossil fuel giant leverages its wealth and power to block or weaken climate action legislation in the U.S. Congress. The recording was made by Unearthed, Greenpeace UK's investigative unit, where their members posed as headhunters to obtain several incriminating admissions from Keith McCoy. ExxonMobil's senior director of federal relations. In the clandestinely made recording, McCoy asserted that the company secretly fought against legislative action on climate change using third-party organizations, lobbied key senators to remove and or weaken climate change measures from President Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure and jobs bill, and that ExxonMobil regards trade bodies like the American Petroleum Institute as whipping boys in order to avoid public scrutiny on Capitol Hill. Your reporter spoke with Natalie Meebane, Policy Director with the International Climate Action Group 350.org. Here she assesses the significance of the ExxonMobil lobbyist's comments and her group's priorities for climate action in the Biden administration's proposed infrastructure plan. It's not illegal for a company to lobby, so we cannot say you are not allowed to lobby because that's not realistic, right? They can lobby. What we can say is that if you accept meetings with representatives of ExxonMobil or any other dirty fuel, oil, coal, gas, we're going to track that ourselves. Now, we're going to track who you meet with, when you meet with them, and why you meet with them. So we cannot necessarily stop ExxonMobil or any of these companies from reaching out. But what we will decide is, are you on the dirty list? Are you on the list of members of Congress who willingly accept meetings with these people? And if so, why? He names the member of Congress that are key to his work, the person from Exxon, right? So are you on that list? And what list do you want to be on? What side of history do you want to end up on as it relates to the climate crisis? Our stance is at 350.org is that you can declare yourself an ally to the people who are unfortunately being impacted by climate change, or you can declare yourself an ally to the fossil fuel industry. Natalie, what's your opinion of how the United States corporate media outlets have covered this revelation about ExxonMobil's behind-the-scenes role in Congress, commenting directly on this guy Keith McCoy from ExxonMobil and what he said to these Greenpeace activists. Honestly, I think overall it hasn't been covered extensively. Most people I know don't actually know what occurred last week Wednesday when we were like, you know, informed about the story. I think that it's not a surprise to most people, but at the same time, I don't feel that it has been publicized to the point that it should be. 
we have a corporation who we already knew, already knew, was behind the scenes destroying our climate, admitting openly how they do it, why they do it, what occurs. So it's not that we are surprised by what ExxonMobil did. It's just that at this point, you cannot deny what is happening. So my response is, in terms of any mainstream media sources who have not covered it, you do not need to look at climate change as a mistake. Climate change is not a mistake. It is intentional. It is intentional based on actions of individuals who have not cared about the existence of humanity. And what we saw last week from these recordings from ExxonMobil is everything that we suspected they were guilty of, they are in fact guilty of. What are the priorities of your group, 350.org, in negotiations that are ongoing right now about Biden's infrastructure plan? So the number one thing that we feel like we have to get through this infrastructure plan is ending fossil fuel subsidies. So this is the thing that a lot of people don't think about. The United States government pays directly from taxpayer dollars tens of billions of dollars to fossil fuel companies just to exist. From a variety of estimates, the United States government pays about $40 billion a year towards fossil fuel companies just to exist. So the, one of the number one things we're fighting within this infrastructure fight is to end all fossil fuel subsidies. Now, President Biden himself has actually said that he wants to end fossil fuel subsidies, which is great. But as we saw last week and a few a short time ago, there was some news about whether or not his new legislation will include climate provisions. Now, what we are pushing for at 350.org is that we understand that any infrastructure bill needs to include fossil fuel infrastructure in there in terms of eliminating fossil fuel infrastructure and fully investing in clean energy. We talk about whether clean energy can compete. How do you compete when the actual federal government gives away billions of dollars two fossil fuel companies just to exist. So that's the number one thing we're fighting for. We have many more things. Overall, we want a clean energy standard, a standard by which every state has to make to provide electricity to people in this country. The reason why we have to have a clean energy bill within the infrastructure package is because you cannot at this point in 2021 pretend that infrastructure and climate are not the same thing. That was Natalie Meebane, Policy Director with the International Climate Action Group, 350.org. Find a link to a recording of the ExxonMobil lobbyist's secretly recorded comments and related articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed 
by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFN in Nashville, Tennessee, WTND in Macomb, Illinois, KOWA in Olympia, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Mm-hmm.